Good morning. Good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I love the uh, opportunity to be able to meet you afterwards if I haven't met you. I'd love for you to come slug me in the arm and introduce yourself. But if you are here and you're a guest, make yourself at home. We just love the fact that you're here. If you need to find your way around, there's people with name tags on, lanyards around their neck, ready, willing, wanting to help you out this morning. Uh, I want you to grab a Bible right out of the gate. I want you to look in that Bible to Romans chapter 8, and then in your program there should be a little sheet of paper for you to take some notes. I do think there's some things that are going to be worthwhile writing down. We're going to look at one of the most beautiful yet hard passages that we could uh, look at this morning, and yet we want to kind of help it make some sense. As you're getting ready there, I would say this. Last time I was here, I loved being here, but last time I was here, I spoke, and some of you might remember I lost my voice uh, halfway through. I went home that day, was sicker than a dog. I was supposed to fly to California uh, on Monday. I was speaking at a conference out there in California. I was really looking forward to it. I got up. I felt even worse on Monday, uh, so my flight was to leave at 2 o'clock. I went in that morning to the doctor after I spoke here, and when I went into the doctor, the doctor said, you're going nowhere. She said, you preached with pneumonia yesterday, and so I was down for the count. So we hope today goes better than that. Can we get an amen on that? Yeah, we hope it goes better than that, but Romans 8 is where we're at, and the reason that we are there, and I'm going to try to get done on time. Apparently, there's a meeting right after this, and so we invite you all to stay for that, uh, but uh, the staff here at Barbering, can I just tell you this, the staff at Barbering, I love meeting with them. Uh, one of the things, though, they're very hard on me. Uh, I mean that because every time they find out I'm preaching, they always say it's going to go long. Don't give an amen on that one, right? A guy after first service said this. This is for all the staff members in the room. He said, do you know what the quarterback said to the wide receiver? I said, no, I'm a big football guy. I said, no. He said, go long, is what he said, okay? So that's what we're going to go with today. But anyways, uh, we're in this passage because doing this series called Life Is, all of us have a philosophy of life. Okay, that's what we've been saying every week. All of us have a philosophy of life. We could finish the statement, life is, and however you would finish that might tell us your philosophy of life. People have all kinds of cute ways of putting it. Over the Norton campus, people have been sending me on Google. All these things they're finding on bumper stickers, right? Or maybe these things are finding on plaques and things of that nature. Uh, maybe you've come across some of these. Life is what you make it. Life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you react to it. Uh, I like this one because uh, I'm a football fan. Any football fans in the room? Let me hear you. Three of you. Okay, that's awesome. Life, life is like football. You tackle your problems, you block your fears, and you score your points when you get the opportunity. That's an interesting philosophy of life. Life is a song. Sing it. Life is a game. Play it. Life's a challenge. Meet it. Life is a dream. Realize it. Life is a sacrifice. Offer it. Life is love. Enjoy it. I like this one. See if you can't relate with this. Life is a roller coaster. Any amens on that, right? There are ups and there are downs. There's hills, there's valleys, and there's peaks. Someone else sent me this. Life is a test. Sometimes life is a blur, life is a painting, life is a gift, and then the Cars movie says life is a highway, right? I want to ride it all night long. Paul wants to say this, that life attached to Jesus, there's certain things that we need to know about life attached to Jesus. Because when I attach my life to Jesus, Spirit of God dwells inside. And Romans 8 is all about what life is when I've attached my life to Jesus and when God's Spirit lives inside. And so we've been doing this five weeks, one chapter, and here's what we've already said. That for those who are attached to Jesus, life is freedom, right? That there are only two kinds of people in this, in, in, right, in this room right now. There's only two kinds of people. And the two kinds of people in this room right now are those who are in Christ, listen close, and those who aren't. 
Not in church and those who aren't, those who are in Christ and those who aren't. The question is, are you in Christ? Have you ever said yes to Jesus? Because what Paul is saying is that for those who are in Christ, there's freedom. Freedom from the penalty of my sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And freedom from the power of my sin. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God lives in. I got this power, right? Which led to the next week, when I'm in Christ, I belong. I belong. We said that is so important for teenagers and young people to hear, all of us to hear. But everybody's looking for a place to belong, a sense of belonging. In Christ, I belong to the family of God. I have a new identity. I'm an adopted son of God. I have this new power, new power to kill sin. I have this new intimacy. I can literally talk to God and say, Daddy! And I can talk to God that way. That's mind-blowing to me. And I have this new security, which led to last week. And here's what we said last week, and it's going to get us where we're going this week. We said life is freedom. Life is belonging to the family of God. See if I can't get anybody to relate on this one. Life, sometimes, Paul says, is hard. Any amens on that? Life is hard. And I love the fact that the Bible never sugarcoats that. And here's what we said, and maybe you're here. For some of you in the room, that's a philosophical dilemma. Literally. That's, you're saying, what do you mean by that, Dan? Well, for some of you, you grew up learning a prayer as a child. And the prayer that you learned as a child goes like this. God is great. God is good. You must have learned the prayer. And so when times get hard, it creates a philosophical dilemma for you because if God is great, you wonder to yourself, why can't he stop the suffering and the hard things in the world? And if God is good, why won't he? And all of a sudden, you got this philosophical dilemma, and there's tons of books written about that. We actually, uh, Norton preached a series a couple years ago about that. But for a lot of us, you ready to lean in? For a lot of us, it's not a philosophical problem. We can talk about that another time. For a lot of us, it's a personal problem. It's a personal question. Because for a lot of us in this room, we are going through a hard time right now. And for a lot of us, we've been through a hard time. And can I just say, because I see some youngins in the room, some of us like, I've not in a hard time and I've not been through a hard time. You will go through a hard time. Amen, right? That's just part of the human experience. And what Paul wants us to know and what Scripture underscores is hard times are inevitable. They're unpredictable. Anybody agree with that? You don't schedule your hard times, right? My hard times are different than your hard times, right? That's just the way. And sometimes they're revealing. You see, I love the fact that Scripture does not sugarcoat it, but here's where we want to go today. What Scripture seems to let us know is this, is that for those who are in Christ, what the Bible seems to say is for those who are in Christ, there are several distinguishing marks for a follower of Christ. Stay with me. One of them is this, that the follower of Christ loves God and loves others. We've talked about that different series. But one of the distinguishing marks, you ready? Lean in. One of the distinguishing marks for a follower of Christ is how they go through hard times. That a follower of Christ can be real about how they feel, and yet they can walk through hard times into hope. And that's what Paul's talking about. And he wants to take that a little further today. Today's part two of last week. Today's part two of last week. And he wants to tell us some things that are important for us to hear. I want you to see it, and then let's make some sense of it. Romans 8 is where we're at. Let's look at verse 26. Let's read the whole chunk, and then let's break it apart. Here's what he says in verse 26. In the same way, in the same way as I've been talking about, the Spirit, we've been talking about that in this series, helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. 
who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Father, here's what I'm asking this morning. In the next few moments, would you just help me to simply be a conduit for you to communicate through me in your word what you want us to hear. Some of us in this room right now are going through a hard time and we need to hear from you. Some of us have been through a hard time and all of us more than likely will face a hard time. And so God, I pray that this morning, in this room, September 2019, you would meet us here, teach us, allow the profound truth of this passage to somehow sink its teeth into our heart. And God, I pray that it would transform and change us. We look forward to what you're going to show us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's Paul saying today? I want you to write it down this way. He's saying life's hard, yes, but God is good. That's what he's saying. I want to flesh it out. He's saying life is hard, but God is good. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying we'd be real about our problems, but the source of hope and the source of joy for someone who's attached their life to Jesus is found, it's rooted in the one, the one who is good, and that is God. And in this passage, he's going to tell us God is good for three particular reasons. Now, he's good for a lot more, but in the midst of this context, God is good for three specific reasons Paul wants to flesh out for us in this passage. I want you to write them down. First is this. He says, God is good because God helps me in my weaknesses. God helps me in my weaknesses. Romans 8.26 says this, the very beginning says this. We'll throw it on the screen. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our... Everybody say the next word out loud with me. In our what? Okay, that sounds like a bunch of Browns fans uh, timid about the game this week, right? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our what? Weakness, all right? He says that the very first thing we need to realize is the Spirit helps us in our weakness, which means this. There was a generation when we wouldn't have needed to do what I'm doing now, but it begins with me assuming, embracing, and recognizing, you ready, that I have weaknesses. That I have weaknesses. Our culture, our culture wants to avoid any identification of weakness. We want to raise our kids that way. I don't know if you realize this or not. Well, like, like we do not like for people to have to come face to face with the fact that they have weaknesses. found a fascinating article, which by the way, if you don't agree with the article, I'm fine with that. And if you want to send an email, I would send it to jrios at graceohio.org. We'll be receiving them there. But, but, but the article talks about this. It says, by 1984, listen to this. Some of you are in education. Maybe you can relate. The California legislator had created an official self-esteem task force. It's all about my self-esteem. No weakness, everything's good. Believing that improving self-esteem would do everything from lowering dependence on welfare to decreasing teen pregnancy. Such arguments turn self-esteem into this unstoppable train, listen, particularly, particularly when it came to children. Anything potentially damaging to children's self-esteem was axed. Competition was frowned upon. You're relating? Soccer coaches stopped counting goals. Any amens there, right? Yeah. No more did you get a first place trophy. All of a sudden, it was what? A participation. What? Trophy. Teachers threw out their red pencils. 
Criticisms were replaced by ubiquitous, even undeserved praise. And this was the kicker. There was even a school district in Massachusetts that has kids in gym class. This is real, right? Jumping rope without a rope. Let that sink in, right? Lest they suffer the embarrassment of tripping. What's the point? The point is this. We live in a culture in a day and age where it's like, hey, we don't want to recognize that we might have a weakness. We don't want to recognize there might be an inadequacy. We don't want to recognize we might not be able to do something. And what Paul wants you and I to know is this, is that if we don't recognize we have a weakness, we're going to be missing something powerful. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, I want you to see the 2 Corinthians, he says something interesting. Paul says this. Chapter 12, verse 8. Paul had this thorn in the flesh. He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I like want this gone. But he, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in what? Say it out loud. In what? Weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my what? About my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in what? Say it out loud. In weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am what? When I am weak, then I am strong. In this mysterious, meaningful way, somehow in our weaknesses, there's this opportunity for God's strength to all of a sudden show up. All of a sudden, there's this awesome opportunity for in this mysterious, powerful way in my weakness. It's almost like Paul. Think about this. Paul was a scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And it's almost like he would have been remembering this story about a guy named Jehoshaphat. You can go check me on it, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat's the king. And he's got all the people, and the army's getting ready to attack. And Jehoshaphat, the king, the leader... The one we're following comes out and says, there ain't no way we can do this. In fact, let me show you on the screen. Here's what it says, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. He says, we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the, can you imagine all the men of Judah, their wives, children, little ones, they stood there before the Lord. They're like, we don't know what to do. We can't do this. And then look at verse 14. It was then that what? The Spirit of the Lord came. When I recognize my weakness, all of a sudden it becomes an opportunity for God's Spirit to show up in ways that I maybe never could have dreamed. See how that works? It's pretty profound. It's all Paul's saying is when I recognize my weakness is a chance for me all of a sudden to realize a God that helps me in my weakness. Well, how does he help me? Well, in Romans 8, here's what he says. Look at verse 26. Let's keep going. He helps us because we do not know what we ought to pray for. Can we just stop a minute? Anybody relate to that? Anybody ever been there? Like sometimes in life you just don't know what to pray for. Anybody with me? But like, if you're not with me, I'll tell you, there's sometimes, I, I'm a professional prayer, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah, you pay me to pray, right? I, I go to people's uh, houses and like, hey, Pastor Dan's here, let's let him pray, right? And yet there's times when I don't know what to pray for. One of the times that happened to me, uh, it was interesting, uh, I was doing a funeral with another pastor, and that's always interesting, right? And I didn't know him. We met at the funeral home, and it was awesome. He was a great guy. We've become really good friends. He was about 10, 12 years older than me, <clears throat> and uh, he said, here's what we'll do. He said, you do the funeral sermon, and I'll pray, 
and then we'll drive to the cemetery. And he said, I'll do the graveside sermon, and you pray. Love it. We got it. Got a plan, right? And so that's what happened. Lovely lady, and place was packed. And so I did the funeral sermon. Everything went great, right? He got up and prayed at just the right time. Everything was super, right? We escorted the casket out to the hearse, went to the cemetery. Everybody came. The place was packed. Everybody's getting seats on the hill. It was awesome. They brought the casket. They placed it on the little platform. We all took our places. It was his turn to do the graveside service. I was watching as they placed the casket on the platform, and it was at that point I was kind of looking. I'm like, I saw something I'd never seen in all the funerals I've ever done, but I'm like, ah, I just kind of dismissed it. And he began talking as everybody was seated here. The casket is here. He and I are here. He literally began talking, and he got one sentence out. Like this, this very solemn moment. These people are just broken. He got one sentence out, and then all of a sudden what I thought I saw, which I dismissed, really was true. That casket went from that platform, slid right off the platform, and started rolling towards the family. Are you tracking with me? Like I'm watching a casket roll down the hill. People are screaming, and they're scattering. Anybody with me on this? All of a sudden, I'm like, uh-oh. It's, incre- it's like time stopped. Literally like time stopped. And everybody's screaming and throwing their chairs out of the way. I'm watching. I'm like, oh, my goodness. We rushed after the casket, right? The family laughed about it afterwards. Just in case you but we rushed after the casket. A couple of us got it. We brought it back up here. We secured it to the platform. We made sure everything was okay. Everybody came back, took their seats. Everybody took a deep breath. People were crying. And that's when my newfound friend said, now, at this point, Pastor Dan's going to pray. That's what he said. <laughs> You see, sometimes you don't know what to pray, right? And you may never, and I hope I never have that experience again. Sometimes we just don't know what to pray. And you know, there's several reasons we don't know what to pray. You know what one of those reasons are? Sometimes we don't know what to pray or how to pray or what to ask for because the pain is too profound. Is anybody tracking with me on this? The grief, the grief is too deep. The questions are too perplexing. And sometimes we just don't know how we ought to pray. You ever been there? Anybody ever been there? You see, that's where he says that all of a sudden God helps us in our weakness. You're saying, how does he help us? There's something that maybe you've never seen in this passage that I want to show you. He says this. He says, when we don't know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Look here, guys. This is so fascinating to me. I've heard this preached and taught in ways that I think misses the point. When you pray, I don't know if you ever thought about this. When you pray, you never, ready? You never pray alone. You never pray alone. And what he wants us to know is that God is not some emotionless, stoic being in the cosmos. But that God is this God that feels with us. And that literally this is God groaning to God for us. This is God groaning for us. You ever, been, you ever been in a place where you just want people to come and to feel what you're feeling and to sit with you and just like to groan? This is God groaning for us. This is God entering into our experience. I love that. He helps us in our weakness. Sometimes the pain is just too deep and I can't get words and all I can get is a groaning. There's another reason sometimes we don't know what to pray for. Sometimes the other reason is we just don't know what to pray for. 
right? Are you track? It's like a little kid whose mom has to translate the menu or something like that. Or, or, or is there anybody can relate with this? Or it's like me going into Starbucks. I need my wife to order. Is there anybody with me on that? I have no idea how to order in Starbucks, right? I mean, it makes it so confusing. So we, before we ever go in the place, she says, what is it that you want? I said, something like this. And then she goes in and she translates. Sometimes, listen, sometimes that's exactly what happens. You see, that's why he says this, Romans 8. He says, and he who searches our hearts, God searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with with the will of God. He searches our hearts, he knows our hearts, and he knows our hearts, and he knows his will. And so he prays sometimes, and he's like, I'm going to pray in accordance, ready, with the will of God. Everybody look here, and that's what gets many of us off track when it comes to prayer. I got to go somewhere with you, and you got to let me this morning just for a few minutes. Can we get in the deep end of the pool and pop back out? Can we do that? Can we just jump down? I want to draw something for you on the whiteboard, because when it comes to this whole idea of the will of God, what happens to many of us when it comes to the will of God, we think about the will of God in terms of his directional will. And so when we think about praying, we think about ourselves, right? There you are, okay? We think about ourselves and we're like, hey, uh, God, would you please show me which girl I should date? Would you show me which college I should go to? And we think about God that way in terms of his directional will. And, and many of us get paralyzed by this because like, I don't want to make a decision because I might not pick the right girl, right? Or I might not pick the right college or I might not pick the right shirt or whatever it might be, right? And we think about the will of God that way. And yet when God in his word speaks of his will... He speaks of it in two particular fashions. One is this. It's something called the decreed will of God. Okay? I want you to see this. The decreed will of God is this, is that God is sovereign and what he says goes. God is sovereign and what he says will happen. But there's this other will of God. And this is where some of us get thrown off, right? And that's the desired will of God. God says very plainly through Peter, he's like, it is my will, it is my desire that no one perish, right? I would love for all men to come to repentance. And yet, you and I both know that is not always what happens. We have the decreed will, he says it, it happens. We have the desired will. And what happens is, as we stand and look at those, like, how do those two things go together? God is sovereign. Man has a free will. And some of us get tied into theological knots. And I would say, quit getting tied into theological knots. I want to show you something. Because apparently they both are in God's word, right? They both are in there, so i got to make sense of it. Here I stand at the base of a mountain. At the base of a mountain, and I'm like, where do those two things come together? Are you tracking with me? And all I know is i got to realize that that mountain is so high that somehow they come together. I know, I feel the same way. <laughs> they come together, you ready? In the mystery of the mind of God. Listen, I want you to get this, that... Like, how in the world does the sovereignty of God come together with the free will of man? If you got somebody who can explain that to you perfectly, they're fooling you. They're fooling you. 
but I know that God's word talks about both of these, and I'm okay with somehow a God who is higher than, that somehow the mountain of who God is is higher than a God that I can simply put in the palm of my hand and explain. Because the minute I have that, I don't have God. I became God. And the same God that ordained prayer, he said, this is what I'm ordaining, is the same God that answers prayer and invites me to do it. You tracking with me? Like somehow the Spirit of God prays in accordance with that God's will. That's why Paul says this. Look at the screens in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God? He's like, God's bigger than you thought that God should repay them. For from him, through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Everybody look here a second. Here's the point. The point isn't to theologically figure, like, oh, i got to explain. The point is, everybody look here, is that God, the God that's so high, that's so high, that's the God that says, I'll help you in your weakness. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God I want helping me in my weakness. He says, I'm the one who will help you. You can be real with me, and I'll walk with you through whatever it is that you're facing. Something else that Paul says that is so powerful, and yet it gets confused. He not only is a God who helps us in our weakness, but I want you to write it this way, that he is a God who is working in all things. He is a God who is working in all things. Look at Romans 8, 28, and let's just kind of dice this, slice this up a little bit. He says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Everybody look here a second. It's one of the most popular verses in all the Bible. Many of you could have quoted that to me, right? And here's the thing. That verse, that verse, unfortunately, at times has been abused. That verse becomes abused when it becomes a band-aid for everybody going through every bad circumstance. Anybody with me on that, right? Somebody shows up and you're going through a really hard time, like, hey, you know, all things work together. For good. Or, or somebody, somebody shows up and they use this little saying when you're going through a really, really hard time. Buck up, Dan. That's just a blessing in disguise. I'll bless your disguise in a second. <laughs> you know what I mean? Amen? Right? I mean, it can be abused. Is anybody with me on that? It can be abused. But listen, listen, listen. What happens is this. Because it can be abused, because people will use it and they'll be flippant about it, it can be something that is very, very hard for people can be something that's very, very hard for people to grab a hold of. People like Natasha. See if you can't relate with someone like Natasha. Her and her husband had longed for a child and finally conceived one after five years of trying. They learned that their child was a girl and they decided to name the little girl after Natasha's mother who had already died when Natasha was an infant. Throughout the pregnancy, they read every book on what to expect, prepared the dream nursery, complete with initials on the wall, large decorative letters. Everything was set. But their daughter was stillborn, suffocated by the umbilical cord. The only memory they have is of her blue, still body and the sense of guilt they felt that somehow they had failed her. Not knowing how to deal with their pain, their marriage began to disintegrate. 
they began to lash out at each other and the volatility tore them apart. Natasha's husband began to have an affair at work. He finds escape in conversations with another woman who is, co-work- who is his co-worker. And he convinces himself that he's really in love with this other woman. When Natasha finds some questionable emails, he lashes out at her, blames her, leaves her, and promptly files for divorce. Within a year, he's remarried and has a child, a little girl. Natasha's dream life is now being lived by another woman. Because Natasha is not really a fighter, she lost big in the divorce settlement and has to get a second job as a waitress just to make ends meet. She's driving home late one night from this job when she falls asleep at the wheel and has a wreck. Not only was the car totaled, something she couldn't afford in the first place, but she also crushed two vertebrae in her lower back. This requires surgery, more money she doesn't have to fuse the vertebrae together. For the rest of her life, she'll experience limited mobility, chronic pain, and be labeled disabled. People try to comfort Natasha, true story by the way, with verses like Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And while she can give mental and theological assent to that verse, it doesn't change how she feels. She feels abandoned, rejected, and cursed. But even more unbearable to her... Then Romans 8.1 is when people flippantly quote Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. When friends try to comfort her with that verse, she knows that they just don't understand. You ever know somebody like that? You ever been there? Everybody listen, because I'm going to quit preaching and we're just going to talk for a second. We've got to talk through the rest of this. I see a lot of us know somebody that's been there. Maybe you've been there. And that verse can be abused. It can be a band-aid, never meant to be a band-aid. It can be a flippant bumper sticker kind of theological answer to a hard time, never meant to be that. And yet, listen, lean in. Everybody lean. The same verse that can be abused because it can be abused. You ready? It also can be ignored. And when we ignore, it's in there. And when we ignore it, we miss the power of it. You see, it's in the Bible. It's there for a reason. Then what in the world is the reason? What is Paul trying to say to us? Well, here's what he's trying to say. Let's just cut it apart. Romans 8, 28. He starts with, and we know. Look here, I want to teach you something about your Bible. Verse 26, he said, we don't know. And he's juxtaposing that with what we do know. Sometimes we don't know how we should feel. Sometimes we don't know what we should pray. Sometimes we don't know, right, why something has happened to us. Sometimes we don't know. So Paul is like, you can be real about how you feel. You glad about that? You can be real about how you feel, but he says, but we know. We can go because of what we know. Well, what is it that we know? Well, let's just skip a few words ahead, and we'll come back and catch the other ones. We know God works. That's where we need to start. Like We know that God is not some bystander. We know that God is not passive. We know that God is working, does work, has worked, will work. That's what he's saying. Now look at this. So we know God works in the middle of we know and God works is that in what? Say it out loud with me. That in what? In all things. Now just for you, I did the hard work and I looked up the Greek word. 
for all things. And the Greek word is panta. You can write that down, by the way, check me on this. And so I dug in, and I really did some research, spent some time looking at some books. And what I found was, is that panta, guess what it means? It means all things. It means all things. You mean good things? Good things. You mean things that seem neutral things? Those things. You mean even hard things? Even hard things. That's the context of the verse. The people he's writing this to have seen things that you and I cannot even begin to get our head around. We can't even get our head around it. We talked about this before, but they were watching as Nero was literally feeding some of their followers of Christ friends to the lions. Nero was literally impaling some of them on poles, lighting them on fire, and then decorating his garden with them. Paul has the audacity to say all things. You mean all things, all things, and he meant panta, all things. But what he says, it gets lost, because I don't know what translation you're reading from. He says all things, that in all things, and what gets lost is some of your translations say all things work together. You see, here's what the translators are doing, and if you don't get this, you're going to miss the power of it. They're taking a Greek word, you can forget this, synergy. It's where we get the word synergy. You know what synergy is? Things coming together to work together synergistically. Listen, listen, listen. I want to clear something up. Paul is not saying everything's going to work out okay. Every situation is going to be good. What Paul is saying is all things, in all things, God's working in all things. He's working synergistically, bringing all things together for the good. That's different. That's different. You're saying, Dan, help explain that. Well, I, every illustration falls flat. You ready? But, but the only one I can come up with is this. How many in the room like to eat cake? Raise, raise your hand. You like to eat cake. Okay? I love cake. I love eating cake. But listen close. I love eating cake that my wife bakes. Now, that's a key distinction because I can tell you, those of you who raised your hand, you would love to eat cake that my wife bakes. You would not, you ready? You would not love to eat cake that I bake, right? I'm not really that good at it, but my wife's incredible at baking cakes. Incredible. And so she'll make a cake for me that's made my favorite cake, and it's got just the right uh, frosting on it. And just, man, Dan, I'm making this cake, and I love that. What's interesting is when I catch my wife several hours before the cake is baked, and she said, Dan, I'm going to make you your favorite cake. I'm impatient. Raise your hand if you're impatient. I'm impatient, right? I'm like, when? Like supper. It's like in the middle of the morning. I'm like, really? We've got to wait till supper? It's like, yeah. And then she'll lay out all the ingredients. Now imagine with me for a second. I mean, she's got some raw eggs out there, salt, little flour. I don't know all the stuff that goes into a cake, to be honest with you. But all this stuff, she got it laid out there, sugar. Imagine in my impatience if I came and I'm like, wow, this is all the stuff that makes my favorite cake. Imagine if I started eating those one at a time. Not going to taste anything like my cake, is it? Those things weren't meant to be eaten separately. Down with the raw egg. Down with a bowl of salt, right? Sugar might be good for a minute, then a little too sweet. What does she end up doing? She takes all of those things and she brings them together. Don't miss this. She... Not me. She brings them together 
and then she places them under heat. And together under heat, they pop out my favorite cake. I want to tell you something. Paul is trying to say this, that God takes all things, and he's the one baking the cake. Are you glad about that? He's the one baking the cake. And he takes all things, and he works them together, even those things. You mean those things in my past I wish I could those things. You mean those things that I over here never would have chosen those things. And he brings them together and somehow under heat over time, he says, I'm producing something that is good. You see, what's interesting is what he says is that he produces something. He works the good of those who look at what he says, those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This promise is for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. But he says something interesting, and then we've got to kind of slide home. He says that he works together all things, everybody look at it, for the good. Look here a second, I want to show you something. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide what is the good? Can we just say, can we just say, that none of us in this room can be trusted with that. We can't be trusted with it. We're like, I don't know if you were this way, but when I was seven, I used to think, and I'd go to my parents and say, you know something? And they'd look at me like, thank you, you know. I know the best thing we should do. And they're like, see, God is the one who decides what's good. It reminds me of a little girl we brought into our home. She was from Barberton. Some of you may even have met her if you were at the Norton campus. Her name was Caitlin. She would have no problem me sharing her name. We had known Caitlin. She grew up in the awfulest of situations. The awfulest of situations. One night there was a police raid at her house. My wife and I went to the house because there was a meth lab and everybody scattered and that began a process for one year we became Caitlin's legal guardians. For a period of about one year, my wife and I, she lived in our home. Caitlin grew up doing whatever she wanted to do, however she wanted to do it. She did what she thought was good, and then she came to live in my home. And her good smashed against my good. Can I get amen on that, right? That's just parenting, right? And we kept running into each other, right? We kept running into each other. Caitlin had fetal alcohol syndrome, so she would look at me up through the top of her glasses. That's how she'd look at me. She's 20-some now, doing, doing beautiful, but she'd look at me. And every so often, when her good would run into my good, we always did the same thing. I remember one night in particular, she, her good was she wasn't able to get her way, and she became very disrespectful to my wife. And so I did that evening what I did every time this happened. I said, Caitlin go up to your room for about 20 minutes. Every parent in the room knows this, that you send them up to the room for their own good and for your own good. Can I get amen on that? You don't want to say something you're going to regret. And so I'm like, you go on upstairs. And so I'd go upstairs 20 minutes later. Caitlin would be sitting on the end of the bed that we had made this room for her. She'd be looking at me over the top of her glasses. Her legs would be doing this because she was just short. And I would say three things to her every time every time, and I want you to remember this. I'd look at Caitlin, and I'd say, Caitlin, do you believe I love you? Every time Caitlin would beam, she'd say, Pastor Dan, 
I don't know anybody that loves me more than you and Jennifer. And she always would say this, you rescued me, which I think is a, was an overstatement, but she felt like we rescued her. Then I ask a second question. I say, Caitlin, do you trust me? Do you trust that I want what's best for you? Pastor Dan, I know you do. You're letting me live in your house. You're taking me to school. I know you do. Then I'd ask her a third question. Caitlin, I'd say, do you believe I know more than you do? <laughs> she always took a little longer to answer that one. <laughs> but then she'd say, I know you do. Then Caitlin, I'm going to ask you to trust my good over your good. You see, Every last one of us in this, I don't know what you're walking through. Every last one of us in this room, we're sitting on the edge of our bed, kicking our feet. Maybe you're going through a hard time. Looking over the edge of our glasses. We have a God who slides up to the bed. And he says, do you think I love you? Do you believe and trust that I want what's best for you? Do you think I might know more than you? But it doesn't. I know. I know. But we know that in all things, God works them together for the good, his good. For those who love him and are called according to his promise, his purposes. Paul does something interesting, and we, we got to land here. We got to land here because time's ticking, and I don't want the staff making fun of me, you know, all that kind of stuff. But Paul does something that, that, that quite frankly, we're going to read it, and then I want to make sense of it. Everybody makes it way theological and theoretical, and they write books about it, and I'm like, that's cool if that's your gig. Like, I like reading that stuff. But it is so practical, it's ridiculous. And I want to show you, I want to show you what, what he's trying to get at. Look at what he says, and then let's make some. He says that the good, verse 29, that he's working, is that those God foreknew, he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. You know what the good is God's working? He wants to make you more and more like Jesus. Everybody look here, I'm going to say something hard. If that's not exciting to you, you might misunderstand what the Christian life is. God's good for you, you ready, is not that you have your best life right now. His good for you is to make you more and more like Jesus. And if, if that's not exciting to you, then maybe we're missing something along the way. He said, to conform them to that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those God foreknew, he predestined. Then look what he says in verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What's Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. There's a lot of theological books written about, those are big words, foreknowledge, predestination, all that kind of stuff. Paul simply wants 
And, and those things are fine. Those things are fine. But the, this verse is so practical that if you'll let it be practical, it'll change the way you see your life. Because most of us in this room, we see our life like this. This little black piece of rope represents our life. The 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years we have on this earth. And what we do is we focus on our life. And that's the part when we talk about our life, when we talk about everything, that's the part. We, we simply get fixated on that. And all Paul is trying to tell us is this, is that for those in Christ, that's not all your life is. That's not all your life is. But he says, for those in Christ, God foreknew you. What in the world is he saying? He simply is saying that your story begins in eternity past. And that literally the rope of where your story begins goes in this bucket of infinite time. That literally Ephesians says before the creation of the world, God foreknew. What does that mean? This God foreknew, does it mean he just knew about me? No. When the Bible uses this word no, it means he set his deep affection on you. You read the Old Testament, it says Adam knew Eve and they produced a child. It was more than I just knew her as an acquaintance. When God foreknew us, my life did not begin here. That is not where it is. But literally this God who has forever been foreknew. And it says before the creation of the world, he predestined. This, this, this idea of he knew, he predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son. So that by the time your birthday, for me, April 23rd, 1966, came about, all of a sudden the black line began. And in the middle of that black line, those he predestined, he called. And for some of you, you can remember the moment that that call became effectual for you. You can remember the service you were in, the conversation you were having. Some of your kids right now in Power Kids are being called. Some of you in this room right now, you're not here by mistake, that it is the God, the forever creator God, who's calling you right now. Some of you can remember that moment because those he foreknew, he called. And those he called, he justified. Those who responded to his call, those who said yes to Jesus, they were justified, declared innocent, literally free from the penalty of sin. What happens is this. Paul was very clear that even those that he justified go through hard times. And sometimes it's 50, 60, 40, 20 years of just hard decisions, hard relationships, hard circumstances. That's why he says those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He wants you to know that the same God who in eternity past foreknew you is the same God who has a plan. And the God who is working, you got to write this down somewhere, he will finish, he will finish what he started. And literally J.B. Phillips in his translation of Romans 8 says this, that even as we walk through this life, and this is where I end, he says creation is groaning just like us. 
Creation is groaning. Our bodies are groaning. Anybody relate with that? I woke up this morning, my body was groaning. Anybody over 50 feel that way? Yeah. Just like with creation, J.B. Phillips says that creation stands on its tiptoes, waiting and looking for what God, what God is going to do in those who are his children. What does it mean to be glorified? It means these bodies perfect. The best way I know to describe it is this. Paul said these light and momentary troubles, 2 Corinthians 4, that you and I are going through are nothing when weighed in comparison with the glory coming. 1 John 3 says, When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. I love everybody across the room. Just to bow your heads, close your eyes.